That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. This week's guest is longtime baseball writer Rob Nyer. He's written a bunch of different books, and he actually was recently named commissioner of the West Coast League, a summer wood bat circuit for college players. So we'll talk a little bit about that new gig, what it's like to be a commish, uh, but also about his new book, Powerball. And Rob and I sort of just started communicating via Twitter, I think, uh, talking about things sporting related and otherwise. So I've always wanted to talk to him about how he came up in sports, deciding to be so focused on the numbers of baseball, being on the forefront of sabermetrics and new statistics and his relationship with, uh, with Bill James, uh, of course, sort of the father of sabermetrics. So I love this conversation. Super interesting stuff. Uh, even though his brain works very differently than mine when it comes to the way he views sports, the kind of work that he does and what he and Bill James sort of championed and have, has become much more mainstream is certainly incredible useful for the teams that I watch uh, and specifically my Cubs and the way they put together that World Series team. So I loved having this chat. I hope you like my conversation with Rob Nyer. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in Rob Nyer, longtime baseball writer, the author or co-author of seven books. His latest, Powerball, comes out in October. He's also a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America and recently named commissioner of the West Coast League, a summer wood bat circuit for college players. We'll get into all that, but I want to start out a long time ago. Well, not that long, but uh, Kansas City, where you grew up. You're a Midwesterner by trade. You moved all the way out west. But uh, let's start in Kansas City. Did you play baseball? Why the obsession with baseball? I, I did play. When I was a kid, uh, this was in the 70s, so this was before video games. Um, and, I mean, I loved to – I watched TV all the time. I read books constantly. But I also loved sports. I loved all sports. I, when I was a kid, I played uh, floor hockey and basketball and football and baseball and uh, and basketball. I played them all in, in actual leagues. I mean, that's how sort of sports obsessed I was and most of my friends were. So I loved baseball. Um, I loved the history of it, even as a eight, nine-year-old. Um, but I really wasn't that good. Uh, I just liked playing sports, and I, and I loved uh what really got me, what really sort of created the, the the obsessive fan was the Kansas City Royals. When I was a nine years old, uh, we moved to Kansas City. This is in 1976. And that happened to be the first year the Royals won a division title. And Kansas City at that time was baseball obsessed. Um, you could You could go anywhere and ask someone, if the, what happened in the Royals game, and they could tell you. So it was it was quite infectious, and I just found myself uh, fall, falling head over heels in love with the Royals, everything about them, all their players, everything, almost from the moment we, we arrived in Kansas City. And the fact that they were then very good or better for the next basically five, six years, sort of a sweet spot for a kid becoming a baseball fan, I, I was hooked. And then later, as I discovered, you know, much later, as I discovered Jim Bouton 
and Bill James and um, the, the rich literature of baseball, that then appealed to this other side of me, the 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 the, the, the reader. Uh, and you know, by the time I was eighteen, all I wanted to do with my life was work for Bill James someday. And then I actually got to do it. So it just <laughs> sort of there there were a number of incredibly uh, fortuitous moments over the first you know, 15, 20 years of my life that turned me into the fan I became. Well, it's interesting because I was a huge sports fan growing up, and my obsession, the way that your obsession with baseball was, was with Michael Jordan and the Bulls. But I was drawn to Mm -hmm. stories, not numbers, and I still am. It's just the way my brain works. You put words in there, and they do cool things. You put numbers in there, and I can feel the gears grinding to a halt. (laughs) And so I wonder what it is about either you, just the way your brain works, or were your parents in any way invested in in the statistics side of it or the numerical side of sports, or is that just naturally what you grew into from your reading? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say that I did that uh, because, uh, and the, the only reason that I, I think the, only, the, the reason that I have the reputation that I have as someone who's into the numbers is because when I started as a professional doing this work, um, uh, at least with, a, with, a, with an audience where some people actually knew my name, uh, this was at ESPN.com back in the, the mid-90s, I was approxim- approximately the only one who was doing that sort of thing. It wasn't that I didn't enjoy the stories as well, because I certainly did. It's just that I saw that this is a this is somewhere where I can make up my mark. Um, uh, I, I love the stories. In fact, I've, 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 I've said many times that, that there were two books that, that made me what I am, one was, yes, the first Bill James baseball abstract that I read. But the other was uh, a book by Peter Golombach called Bums, an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that book is pure stories. And uh, for me, I- I've never preferred one over the other. Um, I grew up reading the stories. My, my favorite baseball book when I was a kid was called more strange but true baseball stories. <laughs> there were basically zero numbers in that entire book. It was all these crazy stories about you know guys catching baseballs thrown off the top of the Washington Monument, that sort of thing. Uh, so, and to this day, I still enjoy a good baseball story as much as anything. It's just that when I started, there was this void where really there were lots of people writing the stories and very few people writing about the numbers, at least on the internet. And so that's sort of where where I. Where I, where I directed my energies, but uh, I, uh, I appreciate a good story as much as anybody. So you got to University of Kansas. What did you think you wanted to do or study there? I had no idea. I really didn't. It, I, was, I should not have been in college. I, I should have taken a gap year or a gap life, I, I don't, but, but I had no business being in college because I really had no particular ambition uh, for whatever reason. Um, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to take classes in the humanities. I enjoyed political science and and English and history. But what would become of that, I had no idea. And then again, um, um, I, I I knew I wanted to be to work for Bill James someday. I, I I discovered this my first week at KU. I walked into the the, the college bookstore. And was just leafing through the baseball books, and I found this book, the Bill James Baseball Abstract, and I picked it. I bought it within two days. I'd finished it, and I, you know, I knew if I could do one thing, it would be work for this guy. Um, but I didn't have the 
intellectual or emotional maturity to know how one would actually go about doing that. Um, so I just sort of muddled my, muddled my way through the next four years, didn't earn a degree, didn't come close, um, just had no ambition or didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I just lucked into working, actually working with Bill. That's why I'm always very quick to, to tell people how lucky I was because I had no real qualifications. I had no real skills. I did have a deep passion for baseball and for Bill's work. And then I was fortunate enough to get a job working for him. Well, you're uh, the, the latest in a long line of my very successful guests who have dropped out of college. So uh, I guess <laughs> the, the message is it doesn't always have to be done exactly the way one would expect. Most of them did go back. They just they, they messed it up the first time around, figured out they had to actually show up to class and then and then nailed it the second time. But you didn't need that. You you ended up lucking in or, or, or working your way into exactly what you were looking for. So how did you find access or get found by Bill James to start working for him after you dropped out well it really was just I, I was roofing houses doing that for nine months after i dropped out of college and uh i was just fortunate enough that bill was decided to hire a research assistant in this is in 1989 and we had a mutual friend and uh my friend said you should just apply and i thought well, what would be the point uh bill wouldn't hire me uh, look at me i'm, I'm a i'm a college drop dropout who's roofing um with no particular um you know i don't have a resume i don't have anything um but my friend said go ahead and apply i sent bill a letter uh just essentially describing uh what how passionate i was about about his work and about baseball in general and uh he we happened to live an hour away from each other so we got together for an interview at a restaurant in lawrence kansas i We'll never forget where we were and which table I was sitting at. And um, uh, and then a few weeks later, he called and offered me a job. So I don't know hmm. why. I think it helped that I didn't have to move. Right. You know, that, <laughs> this guy that seems I was passionate there. and close. <laughs> I talk about luck. You know, what are the odds that the one person I wanted to work for in the world lived 45 minutes away from me? Right. You know, How did you just, find his so, email or his, his address to write him a letter? Because back in the day, it wasn't so simple as just direct messaging someone on Twitter. I, I think my friend said, here's Bill's address. Um, huh. Go ahead and just mail him a letter. Uh, I went to the, back then, this is, this is pre-everybody having a laptop, I had to go to the, the uh, university's uh, computer lab um, and uh, type out this letter, print it, go through the whole rigmarole. This, 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 you couldn't just email somebody. This is pre-email, believe it or not. So uh, uh, it, it, it was not easy. I sent the letter. Didn't think anything would happen, and then uh, had the interview. Nothing happened for a few weeks. Didn't think anything would happen. And so that phone call from Bill, um, that was one of those life-changing moments. It's like when you meet the person that you wind up getting married to. It's one of those things you just never forget. Right. So let's go back to college, because one of the things that you did do with fervor and invest yourself in was Stratomatic and Stratomatic is before my time and also probably my worst nightmare because of all the numbers. But explain briefly <laughs> what that is and then how you happened upon a group of people that were so invested in it that you had to be in charge of a very intricate set of, of essentially commissioner-like rules that you had to put in place. Right. Uh, I, I, uh, it's funny. I'd have to think about how I ran into somebody, but I met someone um, in Lawrence and these people were in a face-to-face Stratomatic League, which at the time, was just, that was just going out. Uh, now everyone who plays Strat, almost everybody, 
they play on the computer and they play remotely, which is by far the easier way to do it. And they play maybe a 40-game season or an 80-game season or something. We played, <clears throat> excuse me, we played full 162-game seasons face-to-face, which means once or twice a week you get together with some guys or a guy and you, you roll the dice and you get with your real paper cards and you, you play these games out. And uh, it was, you know, it was a blast. It's incredibly time consuming. Uh, as one can imagine, uh, not many of us had girlfriends in the league, uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. It gave me a real appreciation for managing baseball teams. The one, the one lesson I always, that I always remember is that uh, I grew up watching American league games for the most part, uh, Royals games. And, we played in that. We played with National League players, so we had to learn National League rules and National League conventions. And I remember, you know, for years and years, whenever someone would, uh, an American League manager would switch to the National League in the real world, people would say, "Well, he's going to have to learn how to play by the, you know, the National League rules." And those double switches, boy, those are tough. And I can report, having played in the Stratomatic League, that it takes about two games to get used to the double switch. It's not that tough. So ever since then, I've said, you know what? He'll be fine when some manager switches leagues. And for the most part, they are. Yeah, I, I, I'm i still sort of, so Stratomatic, you're not, a lot of people think of it as the precursor to fantasy. But fantasy involves the actual numbers that the players put out in a game that actually happens. Stratomatic is, there's a card for each player with a series of odds for what they'll do. And then you roll dice to figure out what they oh. did. Exactly, and the, and, the, and the cards are based on the previous season. So you know exactly what this player did in real life. You're not projecting. Got it, so it's reverse except, fantasy. Except, <laughs> of, except, of course, when you're rolling dice, you're yeah. not, they're not going to do even over. no surety. You, know, you, yeah. you, you might draft a player for your team who, who hit 40 home runs. You're thinking, great, 40 home runs, but you roll the dice and he winds up hitting 30. So there's still a lot of luck right. chance involved. Um, but that's, that, that's right. But that's like being a manager, right? You sign Jason Hayward, and you're like, he's going to do a lot more than just give one important <laughs> rain delay speech. And then he doesn't until now. That's um, right. I was, just, I was just looking at Jason Hayward's car, uh, numbers the other day. $28 million bucks through the year 2023 is a pretty amazing thing. Even even the Cubs make mistakes. Who knew? Well, Jason Hayward's not their biggest. You Darvish is the one right now who's uh, looking a lot right. worse than that. We at least got the, the 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 World Series we were looking for, and and he played a big role in one way or another. So you, uh, we still have to juries out on what he can add to the team. Um, all right, so you're working with Bill James, and um, you already were interested in obviously, as you said, stories and numbers. But James, of course, on the forefront of all of the the sabermetrics and the advanced statistics. So. What did that mean for your career and your trajectory in baseball to work with him and to be a big part of what he was doing at that time? Well, Bill was obviously the springboard for me because, uh, for one thing, Bill gave me a, the opportunity to write. Uh, Bill published a book, I think, every year that I worked for him, one book or another. He did, actually. I'm sure that he did. And uh, my work appeared in three of those books with my name. Bill basically just said, here, go ahead and do this. And he was incredibly gracious to allow me to, to work on his books and be credited. So when I left Bill after four years um, to try freelancing, um, I already had a couple of jobs lined up, people I'd met through Bill. Um, I became uh, close to the people at Stats Incorporated. Um, 
because Bill at that time was 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 a owned part of the company and and uh, ultimately I went to work with for Stats Inc for two and a half years that indirectly led to the job at ESPN.com so really I wouldn't have done anything if Bill hadn't hired me it isn't as if um, I would have found another job in baseball or in in journalism if Bill hadn't hired me it, it all flowed from there um, so I you know I as I've said many times written in basic in probably every uh, acknowledgement section in all of my book I owe everything to Bill so you spent four years working with him and then you got to stats was Bill working at stats as well Bill wasn't working at stats he was he owned a, a part of stats so okay um, Bill worked on some of the books that stats published and you know he would come up to Chicago uh, to our offices two or three times a year for meetings. So Bill was very much a part of Stats, Inc. He just wasn't involved in the day-to-day operation. But uh, he was very much a part of that company until it was sold some years later. And it, and it made sense to you to sort of move on from working directly with him to a different company just based on age and salary and everything else? That's why you made the move? Well, no, I left Bill because I felt, uh, honestly, I felt that, that um, it was time for someone else to have the opportunity that I had had. Got it. Um, I still enjoyed working for Bill. He was still doing interesting work when I left him. And, uh, um, you know, we, we, we had a fantastic relationship. Um, I loved Bill, still love Bill. But I did feel that it wasn't, in a sense, an entry-level position. Um, uh, you know, even though I was writing for Bill um, and doing lots of fun things, it was not a job I felt someone should make a career of. It was someone, it was a job, the sort of job, that should be passed along to someone younger who was also trying to get a start. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're at Stats, and then you get to ESPN Net Sports Zone, which is the the precursor to ESPN.com in 96, and then you worked as a columnist for ESPN for many years. Uh, what What did you consider your job there, like your focus? What did they depend on you to bring to people that no one else was doing? Well, it's funny. When I started at ESPN Net Sports Zone, I, I actually worked not for ESPN or for Disney, but I worked for a company owned by Paul Allen, of course, the famous sports owner and Microsoft co-founder. Um, and it was very much a technology company, not a journalism or a sports company. And this was at a time when, when you were in that line of work, the technology industry, you were encouraged to, at least to, on some level, to make your own job, to find your own place in the world. And uh, uh, I was allowed, I was actually hired as an editor, not as a columnist or a blogger, as an editor. Uh, but I was fortunate enough that um, when editing didn't really strike my interest, um, I was able to sort of slough off those duties and be, be a writer instead. And so I started writing fantasy-oriented columns initially and within a year or so less than that really i was not really focusing on that content at all and was just writing about baseball whatever the sort of things that i'd always wanted to write about uh but things that other people weren't writing about and you know it's sort of embarrassing now to me but at that time i would write about ops a lot on base percentage plus slugging percentage um as if it were advanced somehow and in a sense, it was. You know, we were still at a time then when almost all baseball journalism, when when statistics were involved, it was batting average and RBIs and home runs and wins and losses for pitchers. 
Uh, and I, I thought that we could do better than that. Um, and I was fortunate because the people who I worked for were content to let me run with that sort of thing. Nobody ever said, hey, Rob, stop doing this. Be more mainstream. They just said, you know what? It's fine. Um, and to some degree, there was there was some degree of benign neglect happening because <laughs> nobody ever came to me and said, hey, you know what? I like this column, but you could have done this better. Um, right. I didn't really right. have any anyone doing that. Um, but I also didn't have anyone saying, hey, guess what? Stop writing about this crazy OPS stuff and get back to the basics like all the rest of our guys are. So right. So some, I was some people must have been interested. Age. Right, exactly. Pardon me? <laughs> some people must have been interested, too. They would have eventually noticed if no one was reading. <laughs> one would think. I, I think so. And again, <laughs> you know, it really helped that nobody else was out there doing that. Yeah. But when I started, Baseball Prospectus was just getting um, getting going. Um, and uh, so, and, and on the, you know, the, the, the major national sites, well, first of all, there, there, were, there weren't many big national sites, but then when those started to come along, uh, which they did, of course, there still weren't, wasn't really anyone doing what I was doing. So I, for a while, I had the field largely to myself, which was a real help, because I wasn't that good. I wasn't a great writer when I was, you know, 20 years ago. I, I wouldn't say that I'm great now, but I hope I'm better. <laughs> uh, let's talk about that. What's it like for you to see over the last decade or so the larger baseball world embrace advanced statistics in a way that maybe they didn't when you were among those sort of pioneering these new numbers? Well, I, 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 I'm not very good at, at considering the scope. I think I need some more time. But what it, I will tell you that it's gratifying um, when every once in a while um, – when I switch jobs or, well, usually when I switch jobs, which has happened a few times over the last eight years, eight, nine years, um, there will be this sort of, you know, uh, there will be a news item that appears on some website. And, and then I'll, I will read the comments. Um, and I will say, um, and I'll, uh, being completely honest about this, it is gratifying when I, when I see people say, oh, I got my start in the business because, I, I liked what Rob was doing. Or mm. um, I think about baseball differently because I read Rob in 1998 or when I was in college or whatever it was. Um, so I, I, I don't think about, for lack of a better word, my legacy very often at all. But every few years, for whatever, for some reason, it will come up. And it is gratifying. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not immune to... Uh, appreciating having had some positive impact on people's lives. Um, and, uh, I, I, again, I always, and I always come back to, uh, how fortunate I was to have had the platform that I had to have been given the platform at ESPN.com 20 plus years ago to write these things that no one else was writing. And just as Bill James came along, in the early 80s, and people said, wow, look at this stuff. I can't believe nobody was doing this before. I love it. Um, when I came along in the mid-90s, Bill James wasn't writing the, the baseball abstract anymore. So I sort of was was blessed with, in a sense, a new generation of baseball fans who hadn't been exposed to this. They, right. did, they weren't there for the abstract in the early 80s, and all of a sudden there's this thing called the Internet, and, oh, here's this person who's writing something that nobody else is writing. And... I kind of like it. This makes sense to me. So to the degree that I was able to reach people in that way, I've always felt very fortunate and, yes, gratified. 
You know, what do you make of those who are still super resistant? My favorite example of that is a couple years ago, Hawk Harrelson, the White Sox announcer, saying the only statistic he cares about is TFT, or sorry, TWTW, the will to right. win, which yep. is my all-time favorite statistic if you've got the TWTW. Uh, uh, what do you make of those people, though? Because I think there's a there's a sort of understanding of people digging their heels in and not liking change, but at some point it feels it's evolve or die, as it is with everything else in life. Well, of course, and obviously when you look at the teams that are successful these days in every sport, they're all relying on analytics. Um, to some degree, it's a, it's, a, you know, you could, it's a question of how much, but um, all you have to do is read a book about the 2016 Cubs or the 2017 Astros or the 2017 Philadelphia Eagles, whomever it might be, the, the Houston Rockets, for God's sake, um, to, to know that how big a part of the, all the sports analytics has become and that's why it's easy to, in a sense, dismiss. And that, that's, that, that sounds more pejorative than I mean it to. But to dismiss sentiments like Hawk Harrelson's or Jim Cotts or John Smoltz's or whomever. Um, they are, in a sense, dinosaurs. Hey, look, another pejorative. But you know what? I love Hawk Harrelson. He's one of my favorite broadcasters because I love the other things he brings to the table. Um, uh, so it was different. 20 years ago when that was actually the, the, the consensus opinion. And then it, they felt like the enemy in a sense. <clears throat> and I resented those sorts of people. And the, I didn't, I never resented Hawk. I always liked Hawk, but that, that sort of mindset I resented. It, it, it felt like they were trying to keep us in the past. And I knew we, we couldn't stay in the past, but they were trying to stay. And it felt frankly, in a sense, personally insulting to me. And I was insulted, um, not to my face, but I would be referenced in public as someone who didn't understand baseball, um, didn't understand people, didn't, you know, all the whatever. Right. Um, and so this was actually a personal thing for me back then. But now it's not because the battle is over. <laughs> there is no fight anymore. You won. <laughs> now, yeah, that's right. I, I don't think I don't think of it personally that way. I, I think that the people who actually put the teams together, you know, the 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 Jeff Lunos and the the Theo Epstein's and the Bill Jameses, the people who actually were in the arena, uh, uh, actually in the business of winning games, those people won. They actually won. They have they have W's and they have World Series rings. They won. Um, I was just an interested bystander for the most part, but uh, that, that those battles are largely largely finished. Uh, I wouldn't say that I feel sorry for Hawk Harrelson or you know the people like him who don't really buy in, but their their analysis has become irrelevant. And yes, they still yeah. speak to a certain segment of of, of of fans, but that that segment is growing smaller by the day. So we were just talking about this the other day in terms of gambling. And the new rules on gambling allowing the conversations on the air to be different than they used to be. Instead of sort of the nod, nod, wink, wink, we can be outright about whether something beat the spread or, or whatever else. But there are a lot of people, myself included, who are, are gambling novices, who are barely dipping a toe in the water. And so for me, there's a concern that I don't want all of my sports content 
to suddenly be all of these things I don't understand, right? I don't want it to all be about if you hit the trifecta or are you chasing on the late game in Hawaii and stuff like that. But I understand that there's an element of that that's really useful and necessary for those who are invested in it. So how do you consider that balance of wanting to feel like maybe I'm sitting watching the game with my grandpa, which a lot of people felt with Hawk or Harry Carey or any others, Ron Santo, um, versus offering up information that does speak to these new statistics. Where's the balance? I think every broadcaster should be engaged in finding that balance. And it's going to be different for every broadcaster, depending on what they feel like their audience is, their own comfort level with analytics. You know, I used to have these conversations with C.J. Nikowski, my former colleague at Fox Sports from time to time. Um, And everyone has to figure those things out for themselves. I don't think as a broadcaster you can ignore analytics. I think that does a disservice to your, your viewers or your listeners. Um, I also don't think you want to be giving a, you know, a two-minute lecture on launch angle or a five-minute, whatever it is, uh, during the course of a game. It's got to flow. And one of the ways that I think you can evaluate the, the, the talents of a broadcaster in 2018, listen to the game, and see how well they incorporate those elements into their 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 they're still telling a story. There's right. no reason why you can't inject launch angle or exit velocity. And I'm not a big fan of those stats, by the way, on a broadcast. But they do have their place. There's no reason you can't inject all these things into your broadcast. You just have to do it. You have to know how to do it. And frankly, if you're a great broadcaster, if you're John Miller, if you're Aaron Goldsmith in Seattle, if you're John Shambi um, with ESPN, you can figure it out. It takes some work, uh, but everything takes work. It's just all part of the preparation. Um, and for me, uh, look, I cut a lot of slack to, to, to somebody like Hawk Harrelson. I don't expect him to do it. But if you're a young broadcaster, and right. by young, a young broadcaster, he's in the 30s or 40s um, these days, at least in the majors, if you're a young broadcaster and you're not working to figure those things out, figure out how to add the analytical piece into your broadcast, for me, you're not doing your job very well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that it, it felt like a personal slight at times when people would sort of shrug their shoulders, at it, especially if they thought it was because you didn't want to feel connected to the game in a personal way. You wanted it to be about numbers. But you were discussing your new role as the commissioner of that West Coast League. And you said it felt new for you because it required you to be an insider. And you said, I didn't talk to a lot of players, and the majority of my career as a writer, I considered myself an outsider. Was that a conscious choice because what you were interested in was less about the what the players had to say and more about what they just did physically? Or was that in part just because of the job you had? It was, I would say it was actually mostly, Sarah, because I was, introverted uh and i'm still introverted i think of myself that way but i was more introverted when i was in my 20s and my 30s than i am now and i think that on some level i what i would say to myself was i would i would like to to write somewhat dispassionately i i don't want to be worried about offending Hmm. this general manager or that player when I write honestly about their performance. 
And there's something to that. There's something to be said for not having a personal connection to people because it is difficult for most people. It certainly it is for me to be objective, to write objectively when I have a personal relationship with someone. I, I've, I've had a tough time for a long time writing, um, writing dispassionately or objectively about Billy Bean because I became friendly with him uh, a long time ago. Um, it's tough. Um, that said, I also think that, that that was, that rationale was something of a crutch that allowed me to avoid, uh, being, getting personally involved or getting to know people just in a a professional sense. And what I found in the years, in, in the last five, six years, um, as I've expanded my scope a little bit journalistically is that I really enjoy talking to people. And if that means that I can't write dispassionately about them, it's, it, it's probably worth it. Right. Um, I, I love, it turns out, I, I love doing journalism. And I always thought that I might love it because I enjoyed reading it so much. I mean, real journalism um, reporting. Um, but I never really did it until the last five or six years when I've had a chance to do some freelance journalism. Um, and a little before that, too. But, but really just in the last five or six years. And I would much rather spend an hour talking to somebody about their life, their, their baseball experiences, whatever, than uh, reading a book about them, um, because I enjoy that personal connection. Uh, so uh, I've always felt that way, that I might enjoy it. I just never had to. Uh, when I, once I was forced to, I realized, oh, this is what I should have been doing the whole time, because this is what, what really gets me uh, engaged. Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. Without getting into politics, there is this idea that if you stray from the numbers and what you've always told yourself about the numbers because of what your heart or your head is telling you about the stories, it can lead you in the wrong direction. And we saw that. Most notably, I think, with a lot of people predicting the 2016 election, they looked at all the stats and the things that they had always used before, and they said, well, no, this isn't going to happen, though. And so they ignored what they should have listened to in terms of uh, the, the facts, the bare facts. And so I understand how, in some ways, you might think, I want the numbers to be telling my story because that's what I'm covering versus being, uh, you know, a little bit misled by what you feel about a guy or a player that you like. And it's one of the things that, that I've, that I think most of us who grew up with the numbers or were immersed in the numbers is to be humble about them. And, and one of the things that, one of the misconceptions about people who are immersed in the numbers is that they are overconfident. I don't think that that's necessarily true. Um, I think that when you hear someone say that there's an 80% chance of something happening, that you might think, well, the numbers guy said this is going to happen. No, they said there's an 80% chance that it will happen and a 20% chance that it won't. Um, and uh, most of the people I know who are immersed in the numbers and analytics are quite humble about their knowledge. Um, not all, but most. And uh, I've certainly become more humble over the years. And one of the things that I enjoyed writing about in my book um, the most is not that the numbers are fallible, but that they're not completely predictive. 
you right. have to look at them or you can't win. But you also can't, you shouldn't be terribly surprised when they don't prove out. I mean, uh, all sorts of things happen in, in, in the game that I write about in the book, but also in, in baseball in general, which I also write about, um, that the smartest person in the world could, couldn't, have, couldn't have predicted with the numbers. Um, baseball is highly subject to luck. It always will be. Mm-hmm. All you're trying to do as an analyst is whittle away the, the luck a little bit, but it's always going to be a huge part of it. So let's talk about your new book, Powerball. You hadn't written a book in quite some time, and I read that you, you had thought, you know, I don't have any ideas. There's nothing really that's moving <laughs> me towards another book. But then you were approached about the idea of, uh-huh. of these current trends, particularly strikeouts going up, home runs going up, and you decided to tackle it in a really unique way of as if it was one game in which you were seeing and reflecting on all these things. So how did you come up with that concept? Well, I, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. And an editor actually came to me, and I'd had some book ideas over the last that I'd worked on pretty hard over the last, I don't know, five or ten years, but I'd never been able to really put anything together that, that made sense, at least for someone to publish. Um, but an editor came to me just last fall, uh, almost exactly a year ago, and said, look, I love this book that came out in 1985 called Nine Innings written by Dan Okrand, and I'd love for someone to do a, a modern version of it. That was a long time ago, uh, 33 years now, um, and the, Dan actually wrote about a game in 1982. So we're, we're now looking at 35 years plus since someone had done a, a book like this um, or written about, uh, written about a particular game um, in this way, sort of a far far-ranging look at not just this particular game and the ins and outs, but how does this relate to Major League Baseball as an enterprise? Um, and immediately the, the idea made sense to me because I was well familiar with Dan's book, loved it when it came out, um, and has since become friendly with, with Dan Okrant. So the idea of, of essentially updating his book was was incredibly appealing to me. The, the big difference was... Uh, Dan spent roughly five years working on his book. He reported it for two years before he even saw the game that he wound up writing about, and then spent another two or three years after that um, continuing to report on it and write on it. You could get away with that, Sarah, back then, because, quite frankly, the game didn't change much year Mm -hmm. to year. Um, Baseball in 1979 was very little different from what it was in 1985. Um, these days, as you know, the game changes constantly. I mean, the, it looks a lot different than it did just three or four years ago. And they ch- they change rules every year. Uh, we have players from different countries winding up in the majors every year. Um, so the, the it was just not did not seem feasible this time around to spend three or four years on it. So the, this time it was, you know what? Let's pick a game today. You write about it this winter. We'll put the book out next fall. So that's what we're doing. This, this, I wrote about a game that, um, from last September, and uh, I watched the game on television, um, basically, I don't know, six or eight or ten times, listened to the radio broadcast, and then I put together an outline. Uh, here's what I, I want to write about. All these different elements of modern baseball 
and we can see all of them in this in this single game. And now let's uh, see where that takes us. What are some things we haven't thought about that result from the current strikeout home run era, whether that's um, maybe that stolen bases are down or other statistics that have been affected that maybe while we focus on the strikeouts, homers, we're missing out on the other parts of baseball that are changing? Well, unfortunately, in my opinion, unfortunately, basically everything is down. And people will look at raw numbers like, Stolen bases, which of course are way down. We, we, another Ricky Henderson is a, is impossible now, essentially, because we just don't allow for Ricky Henderson to exist, or Vince Coleman, or Tim Raines. Um, we we but everything else too triples. The Blue Jays hit five triples last year, I believe. I, there used to be players who would hit twenty in a season. Now you have a team a team hitting five. Um, so it, it's. It's not really, in my mind, all that useful to simply say, oh, look, strikeouts and home runs are up, or strikeouts are up, but so are home runs, so everything's fine. Right. Um, well, no, I think, it's, I think it's important to think about what we've lose, interesting, exciting things that we've lost. And the one thing that I haven't never seen quantified, because you really can't just look at a raw number, and, and it's funny, just, just yesterday I was thinking, what should I have gotten into the book that I didn't? And here's one of those things. Um, one thing that we don't have room for anymore, in my opinion, is Ozzie Smith. And what I mean by that is that the reason Ozzie Smith was famous, why he was for a moment, anyway, I think the highest paid player in baseball, why everyone who knew who Ozzie Smith was, why Ozzie Smith actually finished, I think, second in the MVP balloting one year, was that Ozzie Smith was, was making highlight plays all the time. You know, I don't know what the number would be. We don't have any way of judging at this point how many acrobatic, exciting plays Ozzie Smith made in a season, but it was a great number of them. He was showing up on SportsCenter or on your local sports uh, news highlights all the time um well guess what with 50 percent more strikeouts today than there were then and many more fly balls just think how many fewer ground balls to the infield that means how many Mm -hmm. fewer ground balls that so that means that when you have a player like andrelton simmons who is an ozzy smith-like player in terms of maybe not the acrobatics but in terms of the plays that he makes the runs that he saves Nobody knows who he is. Right. He's not a star. Um, we, we have lost not just the numbers, but we lose, an enti- we lose entire types of players. And there's no way that someone can convince me that, that we haven't lost something important when we, when we lose entire classes of players like, like, like Ricky Henderson and Ozzie Smith. It's sort of like the... Um... It's like technology. It's like we invent things that are wonderful and we have to wait a little while to find out all the bad ways. Like texting leads us to texting and driving or, you know, social media <laughs> leads us to trolls. And uh, in the moment, you don't necessarily know. You think it's a good thing. Ah, yes, more home runs. And then you realize you're missing out on some of that other stuff. Um, everyone's always trying to fix baseball. But uh, you said that you you believe that the thesis that baseball is the national pastime 
remains, even if we don't maybe watch it as much on TV or it's not quite as popular, that it's still our national pastime. So if you believe that, do you also still believe that you'd want to change things? And, and if so, what what would you do to, quote unquote, fix baseball, whether that's what by I guess whatever metric you think is the most important to its goodness, whether that's more viewers or younger audience or a better, more enjoyable watch? I think the bottom line is we want to see baseball players doing all the things that baseball players have historically done. And that, which is, again, that's Ricky Henderson stealing bases. That's Ozzie Smith making tremendous plays. I just, I think that the sport ultimately is more popular, at least more entertaining for me. And if, if, if there's more of all of those things, and you know, I, I like these days, if you say there's something wrong with baseball, there's this loud chorus of younger, uh, I don't know want to say fans, but younger writers anyway, who will scream at you uh, because you're crit- being too critical. What I would argue is that just as it is you can love America while also wanting to do things to make it better, you can love baseball and want to make it better. And... For me, that it's, it's, in a sense, it's very simple. I want more players doing things that players do. And that, for the most part, means having more balls in play, fewer strikeouts, and fewer home runs, opening up the game to a, to a, to a larger variety of experiences, uh, of sensations. Um, and there are a lot of ways you could accomplish that. Uh, it, Baseball would have to make a commitment to it. It's not going to. It is not going to happen naturally, organically. It just won't. Um, at some point, the people who run the game, and when I say that, I'm very specific about this in the book. It isn't just Rob Manford and the owners who run the game. The union runs the game as well. Everyone, at some point, would have to agree. You know what? Yes, we want to do. We want to see players doing more things than they're doing now. Now, how do we accomplish that? And that would require some experimentation. It would it would require some science. A lot of smart people in a room together hashing these things out. But it absolutely could happen. They just have to want it to happen. What's the quick and easy one or two things that you would say you should just throw out there to try see if they do it? Well, the the what I would do is. I would, at least to experiment, whether that's in the Atlantic League or someplace, just to see what happens, you lower the mound by two inches. Um, you probably monkey around at the strike zone a little bit, move the strike zone up a little bit so you don't incentivize the uppercut swing hmm. that we have now all over the place. Maybe you deaden the ball just a little bit. <clears throat> I mean, these are all, Sarah, the thing is, people would think, oh, that's, that's too radical. But if you go back and look at, at the history of baseball, and every sport, of course, but baseball in particular, you find that the mound height has been changed. You find that the baseball has been changed. You find that the strike zone has been changed. Who, what I want to know is who decided at some point in the last 10 or 20 years that we've somehow reached the perfect balance in all these things, and now they're sacrosanct, and nothing should ever be changed again. Um, that never happened. Nobody ever got together and said, "Oh, yeah, let's just stop here. Let's never let's not evolve anymore." Nobody ever decided that. It's just that because of the media and because of uh, the power of the players' association, um, 
Now, it's, it, at this moment, it's almost impossible to make substantive changes in how the game is played. But it's always happened before, and there's no, there's no intellectual reason why it shouldn't happen again. Right. We, we cling to stuff in baseball, I think, more than others because of the numbers, but we fail to recognize the moments in the past where things have changed and we've, we've moved on. We fear change That's in every right. aspect, but especially in sport, we, we kind of push back until we realize that we don't even notice anymore that thing that we feared so much. It's like a new Facebook layout, really. We, we really freak out and then we're fine. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, uh, you gotta do the one thing that, uh, nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with? Uh, I wish that um, I could juggle four balls. <laughs> okay. Number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom. Ooh, nice. Uh, number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, a day. I'm going to say... Mike Trout. Hmm, that'd be a good one. Uh, number four, what's the most scared you've ever been? Most scared. Uh, looking up at a knife-edge summit at the top of a mountain climb. Ooh. Uh, where was that? Uh, El Dorado in the North Cascades. Hmm. Uh, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, one of the many, multiple times that I've forgotten <laughs> that my uh, zipper was not up. Oh, no. It happens often? Perhaps that should be something that you retain and use for future trips to the bathroom. One would think, yes. <laughs> uh, number six, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, wh whatever my latest book was. <laughs> Come on. That's not true. <laughs> well, there. unfortunately, most writers are insecure. Uh, biggest failure? No, I don't know. I think I wasn't the, I wasn't the best uh, stepfather the first time around. Hmm. That'll happen, yeah. Um, number seven, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? I, I, uh, wow, that's a tough one. I really care. Uh, that, that's probably the biggest one. Uh, I, um, give me a project and I will do, uh, I'm, I'm very goal-oriented, task-oriented. So I need, I need a project, but once I have that project, I will, I will plow through till it's finished. What do you care most about? Doing your best, having it be well received, doing it comprehensively. What what drives you? Um, what drives me? I think at this point, it's it's doing work that that I'm not embarrassed by. I, I'm never <laughs> going to do work as good as I want it to be. Um, the writers I admire are all better than I am, so it's tough because I can. I, I'm never going to be as good. I know I'll never be as good as they are. So that's a tough standard, um, but I at least want to feel like I did the best job I could at that moment. Um, um, and, you know, five years ago, five years from now, I can at least look back and say that was the best book that I could write then. Maybe not the best book I could ever write, but the best book I could write then. Right. In some ways, I think writing is like sports in that way, right? You can look at other athletes and say, I will never be as good as that person, but my best is X and I need to meet that. And that's the same with writers. I read other writers and I think, well, I should just stop trying. This is a waste of my time and it's an embarrassment to everyone involved. And then I think, all right, yeah. do your best and put out something that you can be proud of, even if it's never anywhere close to what, what you're you know, doing. <laughs> Sarah, I really think that there are a lot of writers who don't work 
or are paralyzed because they just can't get past that yeah. that moment when they have to accept that they're not going to be as good as they want to be, but they'll be as good as they can be. Um, I mean, I can't tell you. The only time I really have those thoughts, and I've heard the same thing from a lot of people, wake up, especially the older you get, it's harder to sleep. Wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and just just are, are dread waking up, you know, getting up the next day and thinking, realizing how how poorly you, you did that, you wrote that book or whatever it is. But you know what? I wake up and I feel okay. Just those, when you're alone at 4 o'clock in the morning, at least me, and I think, oh, why do I bother? What's the point? Nobody cares. But then you wake up, the sun comes up, and and uh, start writing, and that's what you do. What else am I going to do? This right. is all I know how to do. I also think when I was younger, I would see people who weren't that good at things, who just didn't have the self-awareness or maybe the the uh, imposter syndrome issues that I did just doing it, and then I would be like, well, I could do better than that. Why am I not? Right. And so I think right. sometimes it is just deciding I'm not the best, but I'm good enough that I should be doing it instead of doing nothing. Because if the if the only other choice is to say I'm not good enough, I'm not even going to try, then that's even worse than, you know, not being the best around. Um, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a writer Sarah, thing. <laughs> I've, first of all, I've never heard that term imposter syndrome, but oh, I know well, exactly oh. what you mean. Well, you got to look it up. And it's, it's rampant. <laughs> the, the other thing is, it's actually kind of sick, but I think you're right. I have been motivated by writers worse than I am mm-hmm. because I've seen books and thought, wow, they published that? Mm-hmm. I might as well write a book. Um, that sounds kind of disgusting, but it actually has motivated me, um, as sad as it is. Yeah. Uh, number eight, have you ever been in a fist fight? <laughs> Not since junior high. Was it over Stratomatic? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I wish I could remember what it was about. Because it was so ridiculous, and I think I was probably friends with the guy the next day. So yeah, yeah, um, that tends to be I, what uh, happens with you I, boys. I'm afraid of this fight <laughs> because I don't want I don't want to lose a tooth. That's a very good reason. Yes, uh, teeth are important. Uh, number nine, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I would like to be less judgmental. Mm. It's a tough one. I have that as well. Sometimes I'm working on it every day. My first reaction is to be judgmental, and then like literally. One second later, don't be so judgmental, you jerk. Right, but right. I like to get rid of that first second. Yes, I w- that's agreed too. I'd like to be like, oh, do their thing, whatever they want to do, you know, versus <laughs> yeah. having to remind myself of that after I've already judged them. Uh, right. Number ten, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh boy, uh, um, charitable um, listener. And um, uh, cheerful. Mm, those are good. I like those. Haven't had any of those before. I like listener. You're definitely an introvert <laughs> <laughs> if you say that. <laughs> I'm more of a talker. I'm working on the listening. Um, and finally, the bonus, who would you recommend to have a conversation with on this podcast? Oh, golly, I know so many interesting people. Um, uh, I, that, By the way, the... The the, 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 the the one thing that area where I've been most blessed other than making a living at doing something that I that I really enjoy is ha- and you know how this is when you're in our line of work you are blessed to meet so many incredibly interesting people people who are smarter than I am more interesting than I am more articulate um, I think you could not go far wrong talking to 
50 people that I've been fortunate enough to sit down with over the years. But, you know, John Thorne, baseball history, he's tremendous. Um, um, Michael Lewis, if you could ever get him on, of course, he's immensely entertaining. Those yeah. two, just, and I, I, I feel like an idiot just coming up with them. I could, if <laughs> no, I had my, good. My, my address book in front of me, I could come up with another 50 or 100 of people who are just far more fun to talk to than I am. Well, that's a good note, too, because I had Tabitha Sore and Michael Lewis's wife on, so I should really reach out exactly. to her and, and see if she yep. can pull some favors. Uh, thanks so much, Rob. It was really nice talking to you. There, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate all your good work. Yeah, and thanks for the book. I look forward to reading it. You bet. Oh, and another thing. This week's That's What She Read are actually two throwbacks based on my guest. As I was sort of doing the research for the podcast, bouncing around the Internet, finding some of his work, I stumbled upon two great pieces that he wrote for Complex. One was back in 2016, The Oral History of Baseball on Seinfeld. He gathered together Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, Keith Hernandez, Jarek Jeter, Julia Wade Dreyfus, and more to talk about some behind-the-scenes memories of the 90s sitcom and the many ways in which they incorporated uh, baseball from the Mets to the Yankees to everything else. So it's on complex.com. It's called the oral history of baseball on Seinfeld by Rob Nyer. And the other one also on complex, the oral history of Michael Jordan's minor league baseball career. This was back in March of 2017. He put this together talking to Terry Francona, some of Jordan's former baseball teammates, opposing pitchers, minor league execs uh, about the journey that Jordan took in 93 trying to become a professional baseball player. And it's one that a lot of people scoff at. There are those who say it's remarkable he did as well as he did, considering he hadn't played since high school. Uh, but usually it's the butt of a joke. So getting a chance to actually hear from those around him about how he did and how it went down uh, is super interesting. Again, Complex.com, the oral history of Michael Jordan's minor league baseball career. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.